Good morning. It's great to be with you. Turn with me to Micah chapter 6. And uh, if you'll also go to Isaiah chapter 58, put your thumb there. We'll be there too. Uh, In your red Bibles, if you forgot yours, there's one underneath you or in front of you or around you, and that's page 1447 uh, and 1152. 1447 and 1152. Uh, Grab your talk notes as well. Wave them to me so I know you're listening. And uh, also just turn it around and look at it. Shift, gaining a godly perspective. I'm going to preface this sermon by saying shifting our perspective to line up with God's perspective uh, could hurt a little. It could cause a little bit of discomfort. And so if necessary, today is an invitation to shift our awareness and our response to social injustice issues in our world. And now I know when I say social injustice, you might be thinking I have no idea what you're talking about. Maybe it's not that you don't care or it's not important to you, but uh, you're just unaware or unengaged with social injustices that exist in our world. Or maybe um, you're a little concerned because you do watch the news and it troubles you in your spirit. Or maybe uh, when you hear me say social injustice, it's totally disgusting to you because you can't fathom the things that are going on in this world. So there's a range of emotions surrounding these issues. And there's also many worthy definitions. So for the sake of this sermon, let's go with this definition for social injustice. The unfair practices that are either seen or unseen within a society that promote inequality and hinder social advancement. These are seen or unseen unfair practices within a society that promote inequality and hinder social advancement. It's no secret to any of us here that darkness has taken territory in our world in many different forms. And while there are many dark issues, I'm here to tell you today that they're not new issues, that injustice is as old as sin is. 2,000 years ago, there were unfair practices, seen and unseen, that existed in society. And so Jesus enters the scene and boldly announces his mission in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now this announcement of good news shows particular attention to the poor, the captive, the weak, the oppressed. If you were to do a casual study of Jesus's ministry, you would see that he persistently associates with people who have no voice or are known in their culture as untouchables. In both word and deed, In his ministry, in his actions, he defends lepers and Gentiles and Samaritans, tax collectors, shepherds, women, and children. In 1967, during horrific civil unrest in the United States, I'd like to read you something that Reverend Billy Graham said about Jesus' ministry. He says, since Jesus Christ walked the earth, The thinking of the world concerning social matters has changed radically. Because of him, 
The world has witnessed a new reverence for human life and learned something of the dignity and worth of man. It was Christ's assertion that every individual has immeasurable value in the sight of God. It was Jesus who taught us that every person is a potential son or daughter of God. When he lived on earth, no one was his special pet because of riches or prosperity. Rank and social distinction meant nothing to him. It was for man, as man, that Christ cared. In much of ancient literature, women were regarded as little more than an animal. Because of Jesus, women are respected and deeply valued. As a result of the coming of Christ Jesus, thousands of Christians through the ages have given their lives to help their neighbor, to relieve poverty, to care for the sick. And most hospitals, orphanages, institutions for the poor, and asylums have their origin in his followers. The social conscience was deepened by the coming of Christ. As I prepared for this morning, I did some research and learned that I have personally traveled to five of the world's uh, top 10 poorest countries. And Mozambique in particular, I have visited four times. And on each of my trips to Mozambique, Maputo, the capital, has a trash dump, and it's known as the Bocaria. And it's common in the poorest of countries for children to live in settings such as this. They dig through the trash and they look for anything that they could potentially sell in the market. And they're lucky to make 50 cents a day. They also look for anything green, lettuce or vegetables that have been thrown away as this is also their source of food. In all of my trips, I visited this trash dump, and there was one day in particular that I'll never forget. I was spending an entire afternoon with a little boy. He was probably eight or nine, spoke Portuguese. I don't know Portuguese, so all we're doing is just digging through trash together. All afternoon, looking for anything this boy can sell in the market, looking for anything he could possibly eat. And I have to be very honest with you. More than ever in my life before, I sat there on my knees sorting through trash with a little boy. And I wondered, where is Jesus Christ in this? Where is he? And in that moment of despair, where I could feel his depravity, Jesus showed up. It was certainly as if God had heard my question because the very next armful of trash that I scooped up to sort through with this boy, I found a New Testament Bible in Portuguese. And I don't know Portuguese, but I can fake it till I make it. And so I turned to John and Romanos and I read him John 3.16, John 10.10, Romans 3.23, 6.23, 10.9. And I did my best to bless this boy with the word of God, but more than ever before in my entire life, Jesus showed up and, and revealed to me that, where is he? He is in fact right in the middle of any suffering and of any depravity. 
Because of suffering and depravity, it's not that he's void. He's there. And so for the sake of awareness this morning, I want to share some of the modern injustices that plague our world. We just sang a few minutes ago, I want to know your heart. As I sang those worship lyrics, I thought in a few moments I'm going to stand on stage before you and read you some things that really show you where the heart of God is. I warn you, if you have a pulse, these will disturb you. They're gut-wrenching. Approximately 1.2 billion people live on less than $1 per day. In many countries, when a woman's husband dies, she is stripped of her social status, her safety, her identity, and her home. Just under a billion people go to bed hungry every night, and approximately 50,000 people starve to death each day. Over one billion people lack access to clean drinking water, resulting in three million children dying each year from waterborne diseases. One in every six children in the world ages 5 to 14 is engaged in child labor. Approximately 300,000 children right now are currently serving as child soldiers in conflicts around the world. Nearly one billion people entered the 21st century unable to read or sign their name. In Africa, AIDS produces an orphan every 15 seconds. And when orphans age out of an orphanage, most likely in their early teens, they're kicked out onto the streets because they consume too much. They're forced to leave. 60% of these girls become prostitutes. One billion people lack access to any kind of health care. An estimated 90% of global conflict deaths are to civilians, 80% of them women and children. <clears throat> I realize these issues sound really far from home, and so I want to remind you that they're all really two flights away. Fly to Chicago O'Hare, and you can fly anywhere. And you can see this firsthand. But here are some injustices that are a little closer to home. Nearly 800,000 sex slaves, men, women, and children, are trafficked across international borders each year. One hour from us is the intersection of I-35 and I-40, highways that connect Mexico and Canada and California and North Carolina. This is one of the nation's worst intersections for sex trafficking. And just two weeks ago in Oklahoma City, 20 individuals were arrested. And the FBI reports that the average age of slaves in this operation was 15. With the youngest victim three months old. There's 750,000 people in the United States that are homeless tonight. Roughly 40% of them are veterans. 
or suffered as some disability. One third of our nation's black male population has been incarcerated at some point in their life. More than half a million children eligible for adoption are currently living in foster care. In the United States, 21% of all children are living in poverty. Brooke Frazier is a well-known recording artist, and in 2005, she traveled to Rwanda, and she met a little girl named Albertine, and was so moved by this girl's story, she was orphaned by the 1994 genocide in Rwanda, that on her next album, she released a song. It's a very moving and touching song. I encourage you to listen to it. And she gave the song the title of the little girl's name, Albertine. And in some of her lyrics in this song, she sings, now that I have seen, I am responsible. Faith without deeds is dead. Now that I've seen I am responsible, it is critical as Christ followers that we open our eyes and we see. Social injustice is not a Mozambique problem. It's not a Rwanda problem. It's a sin problem. And therefore, I assure you, it exists everywhere. So when the veil is lifted and our eyes are opened and we see the depravity among us and we see the injustice that exists in our world, what do we do then? What do we do? What can one person do? Well, I'm going to go on a tangent because you all know the, star, the, the starfish story, right? Kids walking down the beach, all these starfish have washed up on the shore and a gentleman walks up and says, what in the world are you, you, you can't save all these starfish, what are you doing? And the little boy picked up one and hurled it back into the ocean and looked at the man and said, just saved that one. We can all do something. We can all play our part. In the book of Micah, the prophet reveals a conversation between the Lord and Israel and in the sixth chapter, Verses 1 through 5, the Lord introduces his case against the people's disobedience. Verses 6 and 7, Israel responds with a series of questions such as, how then should we show proper respect to God? How should we show proper respect to God? And in verse 8, we see the answer. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So let's look at these three individually. To act justly, to join God in making things right in this world, to confront and overcome evil of every kind, both individually and systematically to restore God's righteous purpose and peace for all of creation. And how important is this? How important is this that we do justly in our lives? Psalm 89, 14 tells us justice is the foundation of God's throne. This is important. As Christians, we are not passive about this. 
Injustice is something that we identify and we name and we address and we pray for and we come up with solutions. That's how we interact with injustice in our world. And to love mercy, to extend God's unconditional love for others. Mercy is expressed anytime we extend compassion, forgiveness, and care, and this is to be done in unlimited quantity, just as Christ has lavished mercy on our lives without limit, undeservingly so, we do the same for others. Mercy is seeing our brokenness in others, leading us to a compassionate and just response. In mercy, we ask the question, who around me, who among us is broken? Who is in need? How can I meet that need? Who is my neighbor? How can I help? That's what mercy asks. And mercy is extending this unconditional love and compassion and forgiveness and help and care, genuine care, and it's doing so while expecting nothing in return. It's extending mercy simply because Christ has extended mercy to us and to walk humbly with your God. Humility is to remember Genesis, to know that in the very beginning God created man and he looked at all of his creation and he was pleased. He said his creation was good. So we know that every single race and tribe and tongue and nation, man and woman, young and old, rich and poor, even people of a different religious ideology, everybody bears the image of God in their very being. And so we live as a people of humility to God and humility with one another, knowing and acknowledging and living that no, living is no person is designated better than the other. No person was created superior or more deserving than the other person. But God looked upon all of his creation and said, it was good, I am pleased. And friends, this message is scattered throughout the prophets. It's all over the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Amos 2.7. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Isaiah 1.16. Learn to do right. Hey, we don't just come into this world understanding how to do right. This is learned behavior. This is submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Learn to do what is right and seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Take up the cause of the widow. Isaiah 58, we see a people who are radically devoted to God. They delight, it says in Scripture, in their religious practices. They are pious and prayerful people. And in the context of this conversation, these people are even fasting. So in their spiritual fast, God responds to them. I see your prayer. I see your worship. I see your devotion. I even see your attendance to church and I see your fast and I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed because I see your business practices. 
He says to the people, I see how harsh you are, and I see how oppressive you are to others. He says, I see the way you bicker and fight with one another, and you want me to be impressed with your religious practices. Essentially, he's saying the kind of prayers you're praying to me are not going to get off the ground, y'all. There's an issue with the heart. On the outside, you're doing everything right, but God sees our heart. And then God shifts their perspective on religious piety. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. This is what God longs to see in his people, and this is the promise that he delivers when he sees it. I hope we pray that as a church we would take serious time to consider how we might hear, because spiritual oppression exists everywhere, but we are in a little bit of a bubble, aren't we? I mean, you may have to drive a few miles to see poverty. You may have to go out of your way to see people living in lack. But the prayer and the hope is we as a people, a church family, would take serious time to consider here in our community and beyond, how can we free the oppressed? How can we feed the hungry and house the homeless? How can we clothe the naked? How can we put an end to belittling gestures and words? Any injustice, how can we cause it to leave? And once we see the injustice, as Brooke Frazier so beautifully sings, we're responsible. We are responsible to do something about it. Awareness demands responsibility. The point is this, devotion that does not produce a passion for social justice and practical mercy is useless. I didn't make that up, that's right there in Isaiah 58. Our devotion to God, if it does not produce a passion for social justice and practical mercy, mercy, what's the point? In other words, the authenticity of our worship right here on Sunday morning is evident in our compassion and mercy and justice on Monday morning. The authenticity of this is made evident out there. Speaking of injustice, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Today's the day that millions of believers across the world enter into a week of acknowledgement, prayer, worship, begging God 
to lead, guide, and protect our brothers and sisters around the world that are persecuted simply for saying that they have faith in Jesus? Every single month, over 300 Christians are killed for professing their faith in Christ. The stories are horrific. Every month, 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed. Last year in China, a pastor and his wife have a church in their home. And when the government was made aware of this, they sent a bulldozer to plow down the property. The pastor and his wife stood there. And they were buried alive by the bulldozer. Nearly 1,000 forms of violence are committed against Christians around the world every single month. And as you saw in the video earlier, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are one body. And when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And so this morning is going to be a little different. We're going to enter into this time of communion together. And as we do, I want us to remember how the prophet Isaiah describes Jesus as the suffering servant. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to their own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Communion is remembering the cross. Communion is remembering the ultimate act of mercy and compassion. Communion is remembering Jesus sitting with his beloved disciples, taking bread into his hands, and before them breaking it into pieces and saying, this is my body. This is what it takes to make you right with the Father. This is what it takes to redeem you for all of eternity. My body must be broken for you. Take the bread and remember me, remember my sacrifice. And he took the cup and he told them, when you take the cup, do this in remembrance of me as well. This represents my blood. This is what's necessary for you to be in right standing with God. This is the new covenant. This is grace. When you take the cup, do so in remembrance of me. I'd like to invite our communion stewards to come forward and prepare. And as they do, remember as often as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we are proclaiming together the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, if you'd like a gluten-free option, that's available on both sides of the sanctuary. And I also want, I want to let you know that I, I know that I know that I know that someone here right now wants someone to pray with them. The Geisters and the Bohannons this morning will be on both sides of the sanctuary in the very back corner. I know they're ready to pray with you. 
So be bold and go pray with someone if that's what your heart needs this morning. So as we respond today, you're gonna see some slides that will prompt you to pray for the persecuted church. Let's pray for those together around the world who in the most brutal ways conceivable can identify with the suffering of Jesus. So come as you're ready. Let's partake in communion together and let's pray for our brothers and sisters around the world.